it's a big autumnal welcome to the new series of the wildlife matters podcast with me your host nigel palmer great to have you joining us again well the autumn nights are drawing in a little it's getting darker earlier and boy is there a bit of a chill in the air all things that make you want to go inside and snuggle up warm and just listen to fabulous podcast and we have one of them for you here today we're starting a new collaboration working with the fabulous folk at one voice for animals and we'll explain all about that very soon and we have a full-length feature interview with the wonderful lucy Steele, founder of wild things rescue in lincolnshire and that is coming up on this week's wildlife matters podcast Exciting news! Wildlife Matters has formed a partnership with the fabulous folk at One Voice for Animals. Our partnership aims to raise awareness of the work of the many independent rescues that are part of the One Voice for Animals family. One Voice for Animals works to create awareness of the work of rescue organisations all around the UK to provide practical support that is raising standards for animal rescues and helping them to raise the vital funds that they need. The One Voice for Animals directory is the place to go to find your local animal rescue, be that for companion or wild animals. And collectively, One Voice for Animals works to influence UK animal welfare issues on behalf of their member organisations and is a member of APGOR the all-parliamentary group for animal welfare. For more information, please visit the One Voice for Animals website. Their website address is www.helpanimals.co.uk. And just in case you've missed that, get your pen and papers ready. The website address is www.helpanimals.co.uk. UK. Now let's get back to the Wildlife Matters podcast. Hi and welcome on this week's Wildlife Matters. We're speaking to Lucy Steele, who's the founder of Wild Things Rescue. Morning, Lucy. Hello. Hi. Really good to have you on with us today. So tell, tell me a little bit about you and, and basically how you got started in Wildlife Rescue. Uh, yeah, that's always an easy one. Firstly, thank you ever so much for having me on. It's a privilege to to kind of be asked. So my wildlife journey start well, the first animal I ever took in was a house marten, and I must have been about seven or eight, and I did a dreadful job, and the poor thing didn't survive. But thankfully for wildlife, my uh, my knowledge base and and things and the facilities available to me have improved considerably since then. I started working in a veterinary practice. I was a nursing assistant and kind of at that point in my life I thought I'd go down the vet nursing route. And I started seeing a lot of wildlife come in, like a lot of wildlife casualties, and many of these needed euthanasia and also many of them just needed kind of a little bit more care. So they needed time. It was orphans that needed hand rearing or, you know, a bird that had been caught by a cat. And what we did at the time was we did a little bit of treatment and then we shipped them off to a local wildlife rescue centre, which was in Lincoln. 
they didn't have collection facilities, which at the time I didn't understand, but now running a rescue, I absolutely do. So it was kind of down to me as the only person at the practice willing and able to transport all these casualties. And it, it was like a 40 mile round trip. So if you imagine during the spring and summer months, we'd get multiple casualties in a day that then needed to go off for care. So sometimes I would keep them for for a couple of days, a week or so before they went on to the rescue. And so with the advice of the people at the rescue and other rehabbers that I knew, I started to develop really, really basic skills. As time went on, I found that I really wanted to work with hedgehogs and the whole kind of idea of developing wild things as a concept came from, there was a little girl that came in and she brought this tiny little hedgehog in um, that she found running around in the road. And up until this point, I'd done everything kind of by myself. And she brought it in and she must have been probably five or six. And she was so excited about this little thing. Oh, she was like, <laughs> it's so lovely. She was like, can you see how many spines it's got? And it's so fluffy and look how fast it runs. And she was just so thrilled. She was like, I've never seen one before. And her enthusiasm was so infectious. And I thought, I thought that was me when I was little. And I wish at that age, someone had gone let me show you something. Let me teach you about it. And so I kind of thought, right, well, I'm going to start bringing on more people and training more people and getting better advice and stuff like that. And so I connected with other people working in the veterinary industry and we developed a fostering system, which was great because not long after that happened, the rescue centre in Lincoln that we used to use closed down. So we were suddenly without uh, a rescue centre in Lincolnshire. In the area, yeah. Yeah. And so kind of our demand just went through the roof. And so we'd started off by this point, I had, you know, I'd done two years uh, rehabbing just hedgehogs. And then I'd done a year doing like pigeons and doves and things like that. And then I'd moved on to garden birds. So I kind of tried to spend a bit of time getting to know each species. And then all of a sudden it kind of went, right, you have everything and so this was the time when I started reaching out to larger rescues and like going on courses. So I went on a couple of courses with Secret World, who were rescue in Somerset, which was they were fantastic. They're, they're excellent, aren't they? Their courses, I think, are um, like industry standard, really, aren't they? They're, yeah. they're you know set in the benchmark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they gave me some really, really good knowledge, and I I, um, I went to one of their conferences, and um, Liz Mullenew is their vet, and she does an awful lot in the wildlife world, yeah. and she gave me loads of resources to kind of help with what I was doing. As time went on even more, we really outgrew the way we, we were running, so we had this fostering system, but people were wanting us to take on so many animals that it just wasn't feasible, and I found that a lot of our volunteers were struggling because there was no time for them to rest, like the money situation was hard, people were turning up at their doors. And it just, it's really hard to have like the wide range of facilities that you need to rehab at your home. So you can't have, you know, you can't have five, six meter aviaries in your garden because the majority no. of people don't have that space. And it also doesn't allow for a work-life balance at all. Then I set up, uh, we opened our centre a couple of years ago and things have kind of gone from there. So we've got a centre, which is like a mini hospital. And then we've now just taken on a six acre site where we have all of our larger enclosures and, and things like that. So it's kind of developed quite quickly over a short period of time, but it's certainly given me quite a an insight into how things 
I was going to say that that is an incredible journey over a a relatively short period of time. And and well done you. You, It's got to be away from the home, hasn't it? And in a dedicated centre for for you and like your well-being and all your volunteers, of course. But yeah. I mean, yeah. we still we still have fosterers who will care for animals at home, but the way that we do things now is kind of once they're out of that hand rearing stage, they'll then go on to different enclosures, and and that gives the volunteers much. One, it gives the animals far better facilities, yeah. Um, and two, it gives the volunteers more of a break and more support. You know, they can go on holiday now. You know, four or five years ago when I was rehabbing from home the idea of going away was just non-existent yeah it just just doesn't happen does it there are sort of peaks and troughs through the year but there's never Mm. a quiet time as such is there the release pen side of it it, you know that's really vital isn't it because obviously we want to minimize contact with the humans and animals well i suppose it's just you know we deal with a lot of kind of a lot of local rescues and and kind of rehabilitate for home from home and so a lot of their animals will then move on to our enclosures for release or wilding so like corvids for example they stay in until i mean ours were released late august but they kind of get released at the end of breeding season which is like late august early september and so you can have these birds in from like may kind of time and at the point when they fledge they need to be away from people they need to be in large enclosures they need to be able to build up their strength and socialize with others and stuff and you just can't you know you it's can't really, do that, can you, unless you've got the space and the, and the right types of enclosures, et cetera, yeah, for them. absolutely. Yeah. So it's been lovely to be able to provide that facility for others, but it's been a real eye-opener in kind of my eyes as to the restrictions as of being a home rehabber. And it, I don't knock it at all because I did a survey recently um, – it was it was surrounding mental health in in wildlife rehab, and of all of the people who responded, forty nine percent rehab from home, and so those people have a massive impact on wildlife rehabilitation. They do an awful lot of work and don't knock it at all. Um, but I think there are benefits to kind of both ways of rehabbing. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No, I can see that, and and that's a huge pressure on on their Mm. mental health the people are incredibly dedicated to the point that they're doing themselves no good as Mm. you know and that obviously has other impacts doesn't it great to hear that you know you've done something on it and the surveying which i haven't heard anybody else do to help you understand it is is fantastic because that's really gonna like move things on as for me one of the things so you might feel the same coming from the veterinary like profession obviously that's well respected and and you know everybody knows that but with wildlife rescue it doesn't seem to get to the same level for some reason in people's perception and i really think that needs to change yeah there's no i think i mean the main issue there is that there's no regulation so you know to be a practicing vet you have you have to do this training you have to get this qualification you know you have to register with the rcvs to practice in the uk and there's not any of that from from the rehab side of things. And so there's nothing that kind of goes, this person is definitely at this level. Yeah, um, I and that I think that's what makes it really difficult. And um, Scotland have recently brought in regulation. And like in America, you have to pass exams and register as a rehabber and, you know, do various things. And there's not any of that in England. Wales have currently got a voluntary code of conduct that they're kind of getting people to follow. Um, And One Voice for Animals UK, who were um, an organisation that I help with, 
they're implementing that with the people on their um, database, like they're encouraging people to meet the, the Welsh code of conduct. And I know there are various organisations out there trying to, to raise standards. Uh, I also help with an organisation called the Wildlife Care Badge, which is almost like a, a voluntary scheme that rehabbers can enter into that kind of says, I meet these criteria. And the criteria is uh, like a knowledge base. They have to have a vet visit and then they have to submit regular accountability. So like records, which is based off IWRC, which is the International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council do in America. So that's what that's kind of based off. And so there's the hope that either that scheme or something similar will push a bit, a bit like a social pressure type thing yeah, where people yeah. look out for it and look for that kind of badge I, I, or something to say these people meet these standards. Yeah, it validates it, doesn't it? Mm. I wasn't aware how much work was actually going on in that field, but I'm so pleased to hear that how much is being you done. Know, and I know, you know, there's obviously a way to go yet in England, but yeah. well done Scotland and Wales for yeah. leading the way, which they do quite often in these things, don't they? Yeah. Oh, that that's fantastic news. I'm sure you see all types of animals, but species that you sort of see on perhaps a more regular basis and then maybe some of the less frequent ones, but you still see. Well, I have to say, all I seem to see at the moment is wood pigeons. Um, I don't know what's happened over the last like six to eight weeks, but our, I mean, I would say probably 60% of our admissions have just been wood pigeons. And so, you know, I don't really know what's gone on there, but we deal with a variety of things. So we're uh, an RSPCA approved centre. So we um, accept um, casualties from the RSPCA within our area. So if the inspector, inspectorate were to go and, you know, pick up, a pigeon a hedgehog they bring it to us so we do see a wide range of of species and and sometimes the more unusual ones they actually brought us a a bird called a little orc a couple of years ago oh okay um, which is a seabird so we don't do a great deal with seabirds this was so she'd been grounded she'd we'd had some storms and she'd been blown down and you know was tired and hungry and all of those things so she didn't take a whole lot of effort to rehabilitate but that was a really unusual one because obviously you can't know everything about every single species and so they messaged me or or they rang and they said we've got this bird we don't know what it is can we send you a picture so they sent me a picture and I sent it on to my bird a friend and she said it's a little orc so then I had to ring around loads of other rescues going what on earth do we do here is this something I can facilitate what you know help Um, and to be fair people were really really lovely and really helpful but that was one of my more unusual creatures because so we rehabilitated her we got her back to strength and then I had to drive kind of an hour and a half north to Bempton Cliffs to release her but that was that was lovely yeah that's amazing that's that's a really unique experience I would say and fascinating and I know I know there's never favorites or anything but I think I might know the answer is is there like one species that you don't favor but enjoy working with perhaps more than others or well i feel like you think i'm going to say hedgehogs yeah i was um, but was i wrong <laughs> <laughs> only because so it's really funny everyone who comes to volunteer or most of the people who come to volunteer at that at the center love the hedgehogs but you know what? i find them an absolute nightmare yeah. because they're really smelly they, yeah. they make an awful mess they can be so hard to kind of figure out what's going on with them they're really like they're really really hard to get to the bottom of things so they can be really tricky i love dealing with them 
and it's an absolute privilege but that if I know I've got you know a thin adult hedgehog coming in I'm like oh gosh what tests am I gonna have to pay up for now kind of thing um but yeah I suppose I don't know I really enjoy working with birds of prey recently this year we've done quite a bit with deer which has been a new experience and has been quite interesting yeah um and then I have to say feral pigeons I love them it's you know every a lot of people don't like pigeons or think there's too many or think they're a pest or whatever I think they're fantastic they've got so much character and I would argue that most people in rehab would say the same that if you get a young feral pigeon they can be an absolute delight to deal with yeah they're they're massively underestimated aren't Mm -hmm. they most people see them as some sort of a problem which I never did and they are they're amazing little things full of personality and and I 100% agree hedgehogs and hoglets are lovely but, but they are the messiest creatures i uh, maybe apart from fox and badger cubs but yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're right up there aren't they in the messy yeah. animal stakes <laughs> so on the um birds of prey one of my like real favorites as well in owlets and things like that they're quite unique aren't they and is that something you see quite a lot as well so normally we get quite a few tawny owlets because you know as they branch they pot around on the floor, don't they? But they can yeah. climb back up and people don't yes. get that. So they yeah. often get kidnapped. Um, I've not seen that so much this year, which has oh, been good. a bit well, I don't know if it's a if it's good that people know that they branch or if it's bad they, because they're not there. But it yeah, we've seen far fewer this year than previous years. So we do get quite a lot of that. I would say the vast majority of the birds of prey we get in are adults. Unfortunately, Lincolnshire is rife with wildlife crime, and and unfortunately, we've had quite a few that have been shot, which has been really sad. But we, yeah, we do we do an awful lot with them. I was really lucky earlier this year. Unfortunately, she had to be euthanised in the end. But I was really privileged to be able to work with a marsh harrier. They're they're extremely rare around here, and in a lot of places, aren't they? I mean, they're yeah, yeah, definitely. So she came in and. unfortunately she had an injured wing and we did try uh, and spoke to specialists and things but ultimately you know it wasn't yeah. they're, they're very difficult aren't they particularly you know the hawks and harriers and mm. things because they're i mean they're so fast and agile and yeah. things but they're very prone to wing issues aren't they and it's really hard to get them back condition um, that was a, she'd flown into an overhead wire and she dislocated her shoulder and yeah. So I thought when when I went out to rescue her, I actually had to get in a river to get her, which was an experience. Oh. Um, but we sent we sent her straight to the vets, straight in for X-ray, and I was almost certain that it was broken, but it wasn't. And so they manipulated it, and they said it, you know, it's been dislocated. And we ummed and ahed about what to do and kind of how we'd go about it because obviously soft tissue is often harder to deal with than than bone. So. The vet was really keen to try, and we did try, but unfortunately, she was she wasn't happy in no. captivity. She wasn't happy with the handling and the amount of, you know, physio and stuff like that we would have had to do to to. Yeah, there, there comes a point, doesn't there, where you've got to make difficult decisions. Yeah. Sometimes. 
again i, I think people underestimate yeah. that side of it as well because put a lot of time effort and, and inevitably money yeah. into um like you know doing the very best you can for her and for lots and lots of other animals and mm. it's really difficult then but you have to don't you for the better yeah. Of, of that individual animal but also for the others that you're you're caring for you've yeah. got to have the time for all of them as as well so yes there are often things that i think people don't see that are really challenging and you can kind of walk into them not realizing and then suddenly it's difficult when you start yeah. the volunteers were always very keen to give names to the animals and, yeah. and there are you know lots of pluses and particularly yeah. for social media and things it's great yeah. but as soon as you give a name it brings a level of attachment that you yeah. perhaps don't want if there's a difficult decision to be made later yeah is at the center we have volunteers that come in like once twice a week as in they do shifts and they name the majority of the patients that come in. I never do. So I used to, and I always used to, and I don't now. But I suppose the difference between their role and mine is that I'm quite in there with the decision making. So, you know, Absolutely. I'm yeah. the one that kind of liaises with the vet and kind of gives the report back on how they're doing so that we can make a decision on on how their care goes. And they do like they clean them out and things like that. And it has it's it's been tricky a couple of times where we've had newer volunteers who have, you know, named an animal and the animals then gone on to not survive. And we've had a couple of occasions where volunteers haven't come back after an animal has yeah. been euthanized. And that can be really sad. I think I think people don't it's difficult because euthanasia is a really difficult topic because I think some people see it as like an easy route out. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. I often get it where people go, oh, you know, vets will just euthanize things because they can't be bothered. And the reality is that's not how it how it no. works. No. But and it is a very valid and necessary thing to do. Absolutely. But yeah. I think unless you're there actively seeing the suffering and understanding like the entire process. So like we could have, you know, an animal in you know recently we had a wood pigeon in with a broken wing and the finder was really really keen for us to to kind of oh well, can you not you know bandage it and try and I kind of went well yes we could but from experience it's not going to heal right from experience what we'd have to do with that bird would really really stress it out um and it's all of those additional factors that they don't think of they think no. of the physical healing of the bone but they don't think about the time spent in captivity the handling that we have to do to be able to give pain relief change bandages and all of that kind of things they don't they don't have to think of that process the time that bird then needs to spend in an enclosure to get fit again are they ever going to get to the point where they're fit again and and that's it like the bone can be fused but have range of mo of motion, you know, is the feather damage too extensive for them ever to be able to regrow those feathers properly? And and like that's where I think, especially dealing with members of the public, they don't they don't take they don't all. See that? No, down. no. And and you've you've got to consider as well the quality of life at the end yeah. of that process, haven't you? For the for the whatever the patient is. Yeah. In yeah. the um, if you can't release them. By euthanasia or keeping them captive and I would argue it's 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 not impossible but I would argue it's very difficult to to keep them especially those that come in as adults to keep yeah. them in a way that would keep them 
not PM, just life yeah yeah not yeah. just like alive not just eating but you know stimulated and you know all of those things it was all, really all of which they need don't they as a, as a yeah. wild animal and and also they're you know that wild environment obviously we live in a very sanitized world compared to that but an injured animal out there is prey for something isn't it you know there are so many i agree totally and and i know how hard it is to sometimes make those decisions you know people like you who are in it you know how to make those decisions and and like what the outcomes are going to be for the animal so but yeah volunteers and and even more so perhaps the general public because it's not in their realm of understanding because they've never been there have they yeah that's the thing and and it can I mean it gets to the point every single year where you've lost so many patients that you go do you know what I will you know I'm going to try with this and and so we had to find a process that meant that so we're we're quite keen to not make the decision one person's decision it's you know it's always a mix of people who will make that decision that's a good idea yeah I get that because we found that people were getting so emotionally fatigued that, that they were going we'll keep them going because I, you know, I can't face making yeah, a decision. Yeah. And so we've now got, um, we've got a form that if a patient's going to be in for longer than six weeks, we've got to go through it. And it's basically like a tick box exercise where you say, can you meet this need and not this need, you know, and it's based on the five freedoms model and it covers all sorts of things like, you know, their well-being. Can they be socially like how socially are you giving them enough enrichment? Are you giving them a right diet? Can you fund that? Can you can you pay for their ongoing care and the facilities they need so that it becomes so each animal is is absolutely treated in, as an individual. And with this document, they're looked at. You know, it's not just a case of like it's got a broken wing. We need to euthanize it. It's a case of right when we're making this decision, we have to go through all of these questions. And if we take no, then it goes to a veterinary decision. And that's yeah. kind of how we do it, so that it's never you've got the the all of the factors in front of you. You've got that basic you know, minimum standard that you need to be giving to that animal. And if you can, if you tick, no, I can't provide that in one of those, then it has to go to, you know, more people to look at it and go overall. Because it's so easy when you've been dealing with the same patient for three, four weeks and then not improving to go, you know, we'll just try another thing and we'll just try another thing. And sometimes you have to step back and go, someone else put your two pence in on this and tell me if I'm doing the right thing still. And, and that, I, I think that's 100% right. And and to me, that just shows the high standard of care that every individual gets that's coming through your rescue. And that would be the idea. I know not all rescues are, are level on that, but yeah. that's so important. And I, I do think that that is a really high standard that you're setting. And not just for animals, but for the people as well, because yeah. I understand what you're saying when you say there's a fatigue if it's something that's happened tends it tends to come in batches doesn't it you know and you think oh not another one and maybe a lot of rescues do use it but i'd certainly hope a lot who might hear this today do consider bringing in something along on the five freedoms as well okay so well, moving on a little bit from the animals and i and i know you're going to say no two days are the same because because i'm sure they're not for you. i was wondering if you could like talk us through a day in your life a- um well, it it does it varies day to day. So I'm really lucky with my uh, centre. So there's some days I don't have to go in, and that's one of the areas that has really benefited me. 
um, yeah. mentally and you know in all aspects of my life my work-life balance is considerably better than it used to be I've got a, a three-year-old daughter Lyra and so some days are you know if I for one of my working days for example it's a case of you know pop her off to nursery and then what I tend to do is I will start the day I do um, my emails because I manage so I do a lot of the computer side of things so I'll do my emails um, have a quick coffee and then I go to our land which is the it's it's a newer site it's six acres it's lovely um, and I deal with the animals there so at the moment we've got various birds we've got the deer uh, and I've got some sheep there that are just keeping the grass down so we sort all of those out give everyone a clean sort out their food and water kind of make sure everyone's safe, make sure none of the enclosures are broken or anything like that. And then I go from there to the centre, which is about a 20-minute drive from, from that site. Um, by that point, we've already got some volunteers or, or other people in. So, you know, if I'm starting on our site at half seven, we've got people going into the centre to start relatively early on. So yes, yeah, they've already started with a general cleaning and things. So I'll go in and kind of assess animals so what we tend to do is we have a handover form so that tells you what the person before the day before has done yeah. and so what I'll start off with is any animals that have had new concerns raised so you know hedgehogs that have lost weight or birds that aren't weight bearing or something that's not eating and we'll go and look at those so that they're the first thing in the morning that if they need to go off to the vets or we need to get a vet in or something like that, we can start that process as soon as possible. And then we just kind of go through making sure everyone's kind of sorted out. So we've got volunteers who man the phones and the messages. And so it might be that we have admissions coming in. It might be that we have vet visits to do. I might be going out to you know pick up supplies. Recently, I've had quite a lot of meetings, which has uh, kept me busy. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of cleaning, a lot of food prep. A lot of throwing rubbish out, an awful lot of washing. We do. We, we must do five, six, seven loads of towels a day at yeah. the moment. And then there's also the social media side of things to run. So, uh, you know, queuing posts, sorting out the fundraising, that kind of stuff gets done kind of mid-afternoon before we do evening medications and feeds. It, oh, <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to you, but I, I knew it was going to be really full on one of those things and a, and a challenge for all the rescues i know is is you were saying about obviously the food um yeah. and the, the washing so there's so food i mean get it donated rather than have to buy it all the time it, you know is that because it must be a massive cost yeah so i'd say food is probably our highest cost or one of the highest costs if you take out like utilities and bills and things like that we have an Amazon wish list, which people regularly donate from, which is lovely. And we had a really fantastic response recently where I posted up and said uh, we needed some pigeon handlering formula for these six million wood pigeons that have come in. <laughs> and uh, and within 48 hours, we had six bags. And it was just it was oh, lovely. So we do have an awful lot of support with the food side of things, um, you know, bird seed and, and hand rearing formulas and stuff like that. Um, the cost of everything has just gone up so much. I looked at the accounts recently versus when I first set. So I set up as a CIC in 2018. And so I've still got the accounts from then. And I was just comparing the cost of hedgehog food. So we use Royal Cannon um, puppy mousse for young hedgehogs just to give them the best quality. The best and, highest part, yeah. and for so for it used to be in 2018, a, a, um, a 24 pack of these tins, bearing in mind one hedgehog leap 
half a tin, one tin per day. It used to be about £22 for 24 tins. And now, if you're looking at buying 24 tins, it's £45. So It's doubled, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and if you imagine, you know, if a hedgehog, so let's say one hedgehog eats one tin a day, you've got 10 baby hedgehogs in, you're using a tray in two and a half days. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's like three trays a week. You know, you're getting yeah. into serious costings then, aren't you? Yeah. So definitely. We're really lucky because um, we've got a thing on our website where you can, like, buy a meal ticket as well. So you can, you know, buy a meal for a hedgehog or a bird or something like that. And that that does quite well. And obviously the Amazon wish list. And people are really great at, you know, just they just rock up with, like, cat food and stuff, which is fantastic. So, yeah, um, yeah we, do ha- we do have help there, which is great. Oh, it's fantastic. The local community are obviously, you know, doing what they can to support you. But um, they they buy the meals for the for the hedgehogs or, or indeed any others on there. It's great. If anyone wants to go to the website, I'm sure they can do that, can't they? And the other thing, I think, I don't know your situation, but I know a lot of rescues are very kindly donated um, towels and things, which is important. Yeah. But, on the back of that, one of the things, again, from experience is the washing machines. <laughs> they just don't last on a, you know, on a domestic sort of standard washing machine. And industrial ones are phenomenal amounts of money yeah. to buy and run, aren't they? So mm-hmm. it, it's just some of these things that are hidden, I guess, from view. But but you kind of need an industrial because of the sheer volume that you go through. But yeah it's it's almost impossible to to raise funds for such things and and then run them because they're they're really like expensive to run on top of everything else aren't they so yeah I mean that's one of the weird things isn't it that uh, and I was talking to someone about it the other day is that we get loads of donations for food and people are really really happy to donate towards food and things like that but when you look at like the non- things that aren't considered animal-based, so like your yeah. rent and your utilities and your phone bill and your waste disposal and your, you know, your washing powder and all sorts of things like that, things that aren't like don't seem directly animal-related, people are often not so keen to donate towards. No, um, no. And actually they're probably the biggest cost overall. Like our waste disposal cost us like 150 quid a month. And you know, yeah. if I were to put if I if I were to put a shout out like, can you give us a fiver towards you know emptying the bins? That would <laughs> yeah. make no no impact at all in comparison no. to I've got this hedgehog I need to feed. No, it's re- it's really hard to get. I, I think everyone s- suffers in the same way in the sense of getting those. I guess you'd say core costs, but you know, yeah. the, but without you somehow meeting them um you know that then the center can't exist can it to do it and it's um it's a constant frustration i know for anybody who's who runs um well i guess any sort of small center but wildlife related in and you know that's what we're talking about it's a really difficult thing and often comes back on the founders and you know friends family whatever but you know that, that that's kind of wrong i'd love to see a situation where people much more open to saying it must be costing you money just just to be there and do your to to run your services i'd like to give you some money just just to use for that Um, anything yeah yeah it's it's really important i think that 
people change their perception a little bit because it's still helping the animals at the end of the day and, and ensuring that you can be there for that day when an animal needs help sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, if we can't pay the rent, then the centre doesn't exist. And then what happens to the animals? And if yeah. we can't pay the electricity bills, then we can't heat the incubators. So what happens to the neonates that need incubators? And, and you know, a lot of centres or a lot of rehabbers will say, well, a lot of, uh, obviously, the smaller rehabbers don't get paid for the work that they do. And so people will say, you know, I do this for free. And I'm kind of like, I think if, if it was just the norm in the wildlife industry to have some kind of wage, because realistic, you know, we run um, on volunteers and the reliability of volunteers, they're fantastic, but they've also got so many other commitments. So like recently where um, the cost of living has gone up, we've got volunteers that can't attend because they can't afford the fuel to come in or they have to take up extra hours at work so that they yeah. can kind of afford to survive and so the reliability is much lower because it's not you know it it's like a choice to be there and I'm not saying being at work isn't a choice but do you know what I mean you've got if you've got paid members of staff that their entire life is dedicated to working there you've got such a much 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 more reliable service like how often do you think RSPCA centres close down for a couple of days because they've got nobody to man the phones or things like that. It's just, that's just not how it works. And whereas us, you know, if we've got a couple of volunteers off sick, then that's it. Can't take in any intakes. You've got to get someone who can go in and do all the cleaning and the medicating and stuff. But like our admissions stop as soon as someone's ill. And that's obviously not the case for places where they're able to afford paid staff. No. And I, and I, I think trusts and foundations and things like that, who maybe would support a, an animal rescue. I wish they would look at this side of it much, much more because mm. even one paid member of staff, you know, will make a difference. And, you know, you've come from the vet world, but you don't go into a vet's and, and find volunteers, you know, no. obviously you've got the professional vets, but mm. you don't find the volunteers on the front desk or anything. They're, no. they're staff, aren't they, at the end of the day? Yeah. So, and it was funny because this morning I was doing, uh, I'm writing this this report out about mental health and stuff. And I was Googling something that was wildlife related and it popped up and said, how much do you earn as a wildlife rehabilitator in the UK? And the, uh, I laughed because it said you can earn between 32 and 35,000 a year. And I thought, really? who is earning that? And I posted it on, a, uh, on one of the groups that I'm on. And there's a friend that I have that that runs a very well established centre, and she was like, "I'm on twelve pounds an hour." <laughs> I was like, "You're not earning that amount of money," and it's it's crazy. I don't, I, you know, I don't no. know where that figures come from. No, I don't. I was going to say that sounds pie in the sky to me. Yeah. I think most people that I know who have set up rescues are probably not earning and it's costing you know almost yeah. it's, it's going the other way and I could believe the costs would be that high but not the yeah. other thing. so uh oh yeah yeah I think somebody's um pulled pulled something out of the AI yeah. there that isn't quite accurate by the sound of it <laughs> Pulls for a survey doesn't it yeah. So uh, while we're, we're sort of talking about money and, and how things can go, are there some ways that, um, you know, obviously if there are people locally listening, they could maybe volunteer, but but yeah. for a wider audience, could they donate or what could they do to help support while things work? Yeah, I mean, donations are always 
are always, always, always appreciated. And it sounds really, I, I don't know, as a nation, we don't really talk about money, but I have to say the monetary donations versus the, well, not versus the food being sent in, because that's incredibly helpful, but like money that's not allocated is is so, so helpful. You know, the odd 10 pounds here, there, really really helps because that's what we put towards our running costs and that ultimately is what keeps the center open is so just any um what we've been trying to go for recently is um is monthly donations so um we've got quite a few people who will donate like two three pounds a month which to them is insignificant you know the price of a i was in starbucks the other day and for that one of their large coffees it's nearly six pounds which is crazy but if you donated that once a month you know if we had like a thousand people who donated six pounds a coffee month. a month cost it, it would change your world immensely absolutely it? so that's kind of the route that we're trying to go down it's slow it's steady but it's the reliable income that really makes a difference because yeah. you know you know i can say yes i can take in this number of animals because i know i'm going to have this income next month and that's going to be able to cover their costs yeah. and you know yes i can take in this animal that might need x-rays because i know i can afford it because i know i've got this much coming in each month um and it just helps you predict better and and kind of yeah uh, budget and and work out like you say yeah. what 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 you can do what treatments you can give and yeah i mean everybody loves a one-off donation but you're right the the really important ones are those who will give you a, a bit every month yeah. that they won't miss and will collectively if there's enough you know once there's enough doing it it mm-hmm. really makes a difference to the center because yeah. you can begin to plan even maybe a little bit going forwards as, as yeah. things grow can't you we, yeah. i'm not saying you don't but but you know it makes it easier to plan some of like expenditure expansions other other types of things like that it, it really yeah. does help kind of leads on to um a couple of more general questions i suppose and and, and i think this does lead on because one of my sort of final questions is um if there was one thing you could change to make this world a better place for animals wildlife in general what would it be would- attitude like the Brilliant. the entitlement of people that it's their space and not animals that like that is my if i could change one thing that i think would make the biggest difference to everything that is the- fantastic answer yeah i love it it's just that it's it's that i've got this pigeon in my garden and i don't want it there well maybe your garden is in that pigeon's home goes so wide that doesn't yeah. it i totally get that people like kind of look down on animals and treat, particularly wild animals uh, you mentioned about wildlife crime being rife in your area as well as it is a- around a lot of the country and people take a-, a perverse sort of pleasure in in that side of things as well which i i clearly don't understand and wouldn't know. and the other question maybe isn't quite so deep what one thing uh could you not do without in your in a day in the rescue <laughs> it might be coffee I don't, I was say, don't make me say coffee <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably give that have that as a given to that <laughs> yeah oh gosh there's a question uh what could i not do that to be fair this can sound really corny but the support of my friends and family yeah. i wouldn't be anywhere like there's no there is no way that myself or the rescue would be anywhere near where it is without 
their support along the way. They've all helped out financially. They've all, you know, moved enclosures for me. They've all given up their time and their effort. They've all listened to me cry and, you know, cleaned enclosures when I couldn't. And without that, and even day to day now, you know, I'm going on a course next week and, you know, my parents and my partner are, are looking after the animals on on those days while you're on the course yeah and it's just it's that it's It's vital isn't it but Mm. yeah support of family and friends is Mm. uh, you can't put a price on it can you and 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 obviously coffee on top of that well absolutely Yeah. (laughs) yeah no absolutely oh lucy look it's been lovely talking to you today thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed learning about wild things rescue i wish you every success for the future thank you thank you I really hope you enjoyed that. I found it fascinating talking to Lucy and I just want to say thank you to her for being such a wonderful guest. And I really hope you've learned a lot about wildlife rescue and some of the behind the scenes things that come when working in a rescue. If you'd like to find out more about a wild things rescue in Lincolnshire, their website address is www.wildthingsrescue.uk. And on the next Wildlife Matters podcast, we will be speaking to Val Green, the founder of One Voice for Animals, and finding out all about the fascinating life of the winter moth. Now, don't forget, you can like, follow, share and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of the Wildlife Matters podcast. And you can head over to our website, which is www.wildlife-matters.com matters.org where you can find out more information buy us a ko-fi follow us on patreon or just give a little donation just to help cover the costs of the podcast all of which is much appreciated of course do think about leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts from and wildlife matters podcast is available on all major platforms of podcasts but for now this is me your host nigel palmer Wildlife Matters, signing out.